Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, broadcaster, and podcaster. I also happen to be the writer Richard Harris appointed to become his official biographer in 1989, and who now, in 2022, a little belatedly, has written, and I'm about to have published on November the 17th, a book called Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. So why now? Partly to mark the 20th anniversary of Richard's death, but also to coincide with the movie The Ghost of Richard Harris, which is currently being shown in selected cinemas in Ireland and the UK. But my book is not necessarily, as they say, the book of the film. Even though clips I did with Richard voice the ghost and allow him to tell his own story in his own words, as his son Jared recently said on RTE Radio 1, and even though I am an associate producer of the film and one of its contributors alongside his sons, and the likes of Russell Crowe, Stephen Ray, and Vanessa Redgrave. So let me explain why I make this distinction. In 2016, I did a one-off performance of my multimedia one-person show Richard Harris Revisited during the Richard Harris International Film Festival in Limerick. I was introduced on stage by Jared Harris, who then, unknown to me, gave the script of my show to Adrian Sibley, and he, in 1999, had talked with Richard about making a documentary about his life. Sadly, that documentary was never made. But Adrian, after reading my script, described my interviews with Richard as unique, remarkable, and the most honest interviews Richard ever gave. Yes, I had to pay him to say that. I'm kidding. This then reinvigorated the idea for a documentary. But even though the journey Adrian took to present to the public, and more specifically to Richard's sons, his ghost, was bound to be heavily influenced by the tapes I made during my 15-year quest to present to the public the soul and the spirit of the man, our two works differ in fundamental ways. And so they should. For example, Adrian's conclusions about Harris are at times diametrically opposed to mine. And he chose to omit aspects of Harris's character and life that I see as essential. And most of the man's magnificent, lengthy monologues, which often lasted as long as 15 minutes, are reduced in the film to a line or two. I knew this would happen, and that too is why I wrote the book. To recontextualise Richard's quotes in their original setting, and to finally place our 15 years of interviews in the context of his life story. So let me read here part of the blurb from the inside cover of my book. It says, In 1987, Richard Harris, the legendary star of This Sporting Life, The Field and Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, was interviewed for the first time by Joe Jackson. They almost came to blows. Jackson was determined to unearth deeper truths about the actor than he usually disclosed during interviews. Harris had manipulated the media all his life, largely to keep people from getting to know him. Yep, indeed. And that near fight, which within 20 minutes almost became physical, started only moments after I entered the suite Richard was staying at in the Berkeley Court Hotel in Dublin. How could it not? As he sat finishing his breakfast, I fired this opening salvo. In a recent interview, you said truth can be dull, right? 
Jesus. I saw that in a newspaper. Yeah? Yeah? Is this too early for this kind of talk? Maybe. Philosophical things like that. Yeah. I would rather we aim to present even murky truth in a way which will make it gleam a little rather than go for colourful lies. Is that what I said? No, I'm saying that. Oh. <laughs> Does it sound like you? Oh, it sounds very pretentious. Does it? Mm. But however, carry on. You do, not I do. But you see what I'm saying? I do. Rather than colourful lies. I do. So why in God's name was I determined to unearth deeper truths about Richard Harris than he usually disclosed during interviews? Well, let me sum it up this way. Even though I know what I'm about to say will add weight to Harris's claim that I sounded pretentious that day. He got it right, and he got it wrong. Because I didn't just sound pretentious. I was, at the time, probably the most pretentious journalist in Ireland. But the truth is that my quest for truth goes a long way back before my opening salvo to Richard made his spoon of muesli freeze in midair. It's a lifelong affliction, probably fired in part by the fact that my father, a lover of great literature, loved quoting to me as a kid Tennessee Williams's great line, truth lies at the bottom of a bottomless well. Actually, my dad did say the quote was truth lies, and I love the paradox, but it's probably truth is at the bottom of a bottomless well. And that's not the last you'll hear from me about Tennessee, the writer, not the state. This brings us to the day, March 1st, 1985, to be precise, when a little epiphany rerouted my life and made me decide to become an interviewer. After I heard that one of my literary heroes, Leonard Cohn, was coming to Dublin, I all but implored a magazine editor to allow me to interview Cohn, even though I wasn't an interviewer. Something told me that I had to meet and talk with him. Maybe I was prompted to do so partly by another great quote, this time by Albert Camus, that I'd pinned to my bedsit wall. A man's work is nothing but a slow trek to rediscover, through the detours of art, those one or two great and simple images in whose presence his heart first opened. And, obviously, a woman's work. Either way, that one-hour conversation with Cohn left me feeling so transcendent that within hours I decided I must become an interviewer if only to track down more of my heroes to talk with. And that's when another Tennessee Williams quote came to mind. I'm full of quotes and something else some might say. Namely, Tennessee's definition of those he called the fugitive kind and described as those who ask questions that haunt the hearts of people rather than accept prescribed answers that aren't really answers at all. I'd always loved and related to that quote, but now I made it my motto as an interviewer. And first on my wish list was Harris. It took me two years to track him down, but then one night, just two weeks before we did the first interview in 87, I saw him on TV being interviewed by Jonathan Ross. I'd already set in 85 about a hundred questions for Harris, and maybe that's what got me so angry watching this particular chat show. There he was, acting the clown and telling the same old ten or so funny stories I'd heard so often that they left me bored. More than that, they suddenly sounded shrill, out of sync, and inauthentic. Look at it this way. By that stage, I'd been a Harris fan for nearly 20 years since I was hooked by MacArthur Park, bought the single, made its middle section my anthem, and then bought every album Richard Harris released the week it was released, starting with The Tramp Shiny. And that included I and the Membership of My Days, the poetry album, and its accompanying book. 
Both were decidedly dark, nothing like this Joker on TV, or indeed the sensitive soul I saw in movies such as The Snow Goose. And all of that is why, as it says in the blurb from my book, when I first interviewed Richard, I went looking for deeper truths. Indeed, to add another dubious feather to my cap as a pretentious hack, I'd recently read Richard Ellman's book, Yates, The Man in the Masks, and I went looking for Richard Harris, The Man Behind the Masks. Would it be fair to say that in some interviews, as with Jonathan Ross last weekend, the weekend before last, you use anecdotes to avoid revealing too much about yourself and you speak more for effect than in truth? Well, I'll tell you what happens. Sometimes you have to cut the cloth according to the suit. Uh, in a, there are interviews like Jonathan Ross that don't want to get into anything of any great depth. And they, they, they I mean, you saw what happened. I mean, I was barely on and you're off. That's right. Uh, I used to do, I'm a, a sort of a great friend of Johnny Carson's in America. And I used to do the Johnny Carson show, I won't say regularly, but quite a bit. And uh, he would, he'd always come into your dressing room before, before airing time and say, keep it funny, keep it funny. So I think in a strange way, one gets used to, um, one gets, when you, one gets used to that, and I suppose, um, the old format of telling jokes or telling stories seems to be what they really want. I mean, it's, 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 it's been conditioned by their requirements more than anything else. Yeah. I, I have no, I have no, I have no particular uh, um, fear of getting down and discussing my private life, providing that it's a part of my private life that should be made public. But I don't necessarily believe um, what you might be hinting at, that because one makes one's living from the public, they're entitled to know and devour your private life. I, I mean, I believe that they're entitled to a good performance. They're entitled to, uh, if you're going to do Macbeth, they're entitled to good Macbeth. They're entitled to good performance. That's all they're entitled to. What you give them after that is something else. I mean, I'm certainly very polite to people in public. I sign autographs and etc., yeah. uh, etc. Et that is also part of, of the of the sort of the outward show, I suppose, of of. of being an actor or whatever we are, you know. Yeah. But, but, I, but I don't think that they have any right to anything deeper than that unless we decide we want to reveal it. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's our obligation. I hate to use the word artist because it, 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 it's such a pretentious word. But as the actor or, the, or whatever, I think it's... it's uh, we don't have the obligation... So you don't agree that the people out there could get a better sense of the, the art or the, the acting if they know more about the man, if they can no. tune into the man on a personal level? I think, I think, I think the very opposite is that. But sometimes, obviously, pretentiousness can pay off because there, inadvertently, with my first question, I had defined the space that Richard Harris and I would continue to explore for the rest of his life and that I continue to explore in my book. In other words, the tensions between the public and the private self. But 20 minutes into the interview, my tendency to continue to ask that pesky question, why, finally got under Harris's skin. It all started when I asked if there might have been a compensatory dimension to his decision to become an actor. There was, I'd later learn. But here, cue round two. So would that have led to creating this alternative? <clears throat> well, the alternative. Well, who knows what created the alternative? Who knows? Who knows? Did it start there and then? One doesn't know. Did it begin there? I don't think it began there or not. 
I believe that yeah. I don't because why why when I was much younger again would I did I go to see Annu McMaster's theatre company that came to Limerick before I went to a movie? Why did I go and sit in the first or second row of the stalls every performance of Annu McMaster, every performance of Lord Longford's group that came to Limerick, every performance of The Gate that came to Limerick? Why did I do that? Do you know? What well, doesn't make any difference why one did or not? I was obviously drawn to it. Yeah. I was obviously drawn to what was happening on the stage rather than what was happening in film, or indeed rather than creating, rather than going out and playing in the fields or swimming, or which I did a lot of, you know, a lot of as well. I mean, it's very difficult in a strange way to, to, um, to go back. I tell you one of the things, also, is very interesting is that there's a wonderful. I studied psychotherapy in America for years. You know, I was a part of an institution in America uh, and a very, very famous, a very, very famous psychiatrist in America who, who helped Brian Wilson. He got Brian Wilson out of bed, if you remember. At the time they could get Wilson out of bed, he got him after years of being in bed, yeah. he got him out of bed. He was a very famous man. And I became a part of, I became a part of that school of, of, of that sort of, it was kind of a hobby or activity for quite a while. Uh, and I found one of the most fantastically damaging things about the mo about modern people, modern thinking, is let us discover why, why, why. America is saturated with psychoanalysis for one reason or another. It's a very good thing for people who are damaged seriously mentally damaged it can be a wonderful thing a wonderful a wonderful medicine or a wonderful therapy a wonderful institution for people to be helped in but in america it's become a rage it, it's become very important um, um, so bear with me there's a yeah, no i'm getting to a point here about what questions you're asking right it's a very dangerous thing to unravel to be that so self-interested that you begin to unravel why you did this, why you're here. I hated my mother, I loved my father, I hated my father, I loved my mother. Boom, boom, it goes on forever. Ah, that is why you are what you are. It doesn't change what you are. You still are what you are, regardless of what made you what you are. And all of a sudden you have Americans feeling that it's wrong that I get out of my bed, the left side of my bed. Why am I doing that? And they spend $150 an hour in a, in a therapist five days a week to discover why they get out of bed on the left-hand side. And having discovered it, they still will get out of the left-hand side, or they'll think it should be a time to change. They'll get out the right-hand side of the bed, which totally disrupts their own mentality and their own rhythm. You see what I mean? Well, that's pushing it to an extreme. I would still so say that if, if I don't I, think it's important. Well, the mere fact I had the mere fact that I had tuberculosis, that I did go to the theatre a lot, uh, that I was forced through. There's no question I was forced because I got tuberculosis to rely upon my imagination. I began to read an awful lot, create things in my own head. Uh, that's a fact. Whether, whether or not it's whether or not to answer your question, that is where that I I I, I got this I, I created this compensation or not is something I have no idea. 
What about all those writers and if, who, and, who have asked those questions and, and have, be it Yeats, be it Williams, be it Chekhov, who have gone into those questions and have found that you not only find out what you are, but if you want to change it, you can change it. The example of a person worrying about the side of the, no, is the extreme form. There is no, there's, there is no proof whatsoever. There's absolutely no proof whatsoever that having changed it, it made your life better or more understandable. Tennessee Williams was a wreck. I knew him yeah. very, very well. And all the therapy that Tennessee Williams went to did not change his life or help him one bit. He should have accepted what he was and, that, and made the best of it. Do you not think his questioning helped his audiences, as in Chekhov, as in Yates? I don't think it does. we learn vicariously through, through reading or viewing or studying you think the that, work. I you, think we do. You think? I do. You do. You think that's that, why I think even the lyric of your MacArthur Park, still wondering why, and now you're saying that the question why is one of the most irrelevant or damaging questions there is. No, the point, what is, no, why? It, why? It, no, I think it is, I think it, I think it's exceedingly damaging if you can't handle it. Right. I, I think that, I, I think the tenant, I knew Williams very well. I can't discuss Chekhov, neither can you, because okay. we didn't know him, okay? No, but I'm we talking can, about that. We don't even know, we don't, we don't even know that the results of the cherry orchard were the results of self self-analysis. We don't really know that. Yeah. We don't yeah. know that for I'm sure. I'm talking of artists who dare But to Tennessee ask Williams, questions. certainly, certainly Williams. Uh, Williams's therapy happened in the latter part of his life when his writings weren't all that bloody good. You see, you'd have to convince me now that Tennessee Williams, the day Tennessee Williams started to go to therapy as against the day he started to write good plays. He, his earlier plays were wonderful. You see, Marlon Brando, for instance, uh, I said to Marlon Brando one day in London, years after I'd worked with him, I said, it was a tragedy, I said to Brando, it's a real tragedy that all your great performances, all the great performances are lying in a psychiatric, in, in a psychotherapist's um, file in New York, and you paid 75 bucks an hour to him to hide and put away in a, in a, in a file all your great performances. What did he say? He didn't say anything, he laughed. He said it was, pro he laughed, he didn't laugh at me. He laughed that it may have been true. It may be a laugh of recognition. And when you say you were studying with that guy, were you in analysis or were you? No, no, I was there, I was there because my ex-wife, my second wife, Anne Turkel, was in analysis. And I thought the best thing I can do is if I got to understand what she's going through, I must understand the process. See? Yeah. She was a typical American yeah, yeah. that every time there was a problem, she had to discuss it, not with you, but with five other people. She still today is like this. And today she can't go out into this. She can't go out and buy a dress today without consulting, without consulting, I promise you, without consulting an, an, an analyst, still, hang on, a two, two astrologers and a psychic in Bakersfield. Okay, but, this I, is, <laughs> but this is common. In America. In America. This is no, common. I agree. I this is very is. common. Why do you think that is? Why? You yeah. asked me why, Richard. You said, yeah. why, is, why doesn't No, why do you think that is? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, gross insecurity, you know. It's, the, it's a national disease. Yeah. It's a national disease, whatever it is. Because they think there are answers to everything. They want cheap answers, quick answers. Yeah. There are no answers. There aren't. No, 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 no. But the, but but listen, but but you're a funny guy. You're, you. you're, I hope this is all this goes down in print. No, you're no, a very funny guy because no, it no, doesn't. No, don't put that off. No, no, just worry. Because it doesn't matter. I mean, you've come here saying, "Okay, here are all my questions for Harris. They're all here in bits of paper. I want to get the answers." But you're getting not what you expected. But you're getting an interview, which yeah. is very interesting. I think yeah. you're getting an interview, not necessarily what you thought you were going to get. 
So that you shouldn't despair. That's like a, you must go to therapy if you despair. <laughs> I'm not despairing. No, no. But I'm still intent on sticking to some of these questions. Well, no, that's okay. Yeah, we'll carry yeah, on. Yeah, but don't no, but I, no, I agree with you. But don't despair. I'm not I, I just this is a framework. It's a structure. I understand. But don't it's like you said, Dean and clipped. That's uh, right. Fashioning a part. I had a skeleton. Sure. And but you, the, you flesh it the way you want to. Sure. Do, but the question. But I'm intent also on going. No no, 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 but I'm not saying that you shouldn't. What All I'm right. saying to you is, don't, don't despair. despair if they're not the answers you expected. I shan't. Because no, we're going into a, a, another area, which other, is interesting. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, okay. it is. No, I won't despair. Talk about drama queens. But Richard Harris saying there that I should go to therapy does make me laugh. Why? Oh, do you ask that question too? Less than a half hour later, after having sat at the edge of a sofa since the start of the interview, ready to pounce at me at any moment, Richard suddenly stretched across it and started talking to me as if I were his therapist. I was in ways. So how did everything change, thus enabling the blurb writer from my book to say, by the time the interview ended, they became firm friends. And to point out, it was only then Jackson told Harris, I want to show the public that there is far more to you than your superficial image as a boozing, brawling womanizer. And to clarify things further by adding, based on a searingly honest series of interviews Jackson recorded with Harris between 1987 and 2001, plus the author's journal entries and extensive notes, this book is also a part memoir that tells a highly personal and moving backstory about why it was inevitable that Jackson and Harris would connect at the deepest possible level. Now you know. Suffice to say for now that the turnaround started after Richard remembered a script I sent him called Father and Son that was titled after the version of that song I saw him sing in concert in Dublin in 1972. The script also was influenced by Harris's album My Boy, which he told me in 87 was based on his relationship with his son, Damien. But that wasn't all. Harris also said to me that my script moved him deeply. And then, after I told him that my boy, the album and the song, meant a lot to my father and to me, he asked, is your dad still alive? I said, no. He died at the age of only 50, addicted to drink and drugs, and I found his body. Richard responded to that by saying softly, Oh, I see your thing about drink then. This was an allusion to the fact that I'd called him out on what I thought to be callous comments he made about people such as Richard Burton, whom Harris contended may have chosen to drink themselves to death. Incidentally, years later, I asked Richard why he felt that everything changed during that chat about father and son. And he said, because that's when I began to see you, not just as another journalist, but as a fellow writer. And I felt that our friendship began. And here I must say that the relationship, or rather the non-relationship Richard Harris had with his father, Ivan, was, he once admitted to me, a central rupture in his psyche. I used that quote during an interview for The Ghost of Richard Harris and before a poem Richard wrote to his father in 1968 that led to him weeping while he was reading it for me in 2001. 
Sadly, that entire section was cut from the final film to make way for a section about Richard's use of coke. But to fully understand Richard Harris, one must understand the dynamic between Richard and his father and between Richard and his mother Mildred. He did say, as you heard, jokingly and mockingly, I love my father, hated my mother, hated my father, loved my mother. Boom, boom, it goes on. But Harris there, I'd later realised, was talking about himself. He also told me at one point that he basically became an actor, in part, to win the approval of his parents. This brings us to the last section of this podcast and something that is never discussed in relation to Richard Harris other than, and here I must say it, during the interviews we did. Even though, certainly over the last decade of his life, it was central to his soul. As a deeply spiritual person who tended to hide that trait from most people, lest he be ridiculed. In other words, Richard's craving to, as he told me, make peace with, and hopefully before he died, to get a sight of, or a sense of, God. I hate to labour a maybe obvious point, but that's why my book is titled Richard Harris Raising Hell, we all know that about him, right? And Reaching for Heaven, few know that about him. The first time Harris and I spoke about God was in 1987, but let me say this about my theological position at the time. It comes across in my questions to Richard. In time, he and I realised we were both on a similar quest. After all, I became an interviewer in search of transcendence, which many say is a defining feature of humankind's search for God. However, you define the deity, or even if you don't. But back in 1987, I was mad as hell at even the concept of God. And I didn't want to say that to Harris. That's how I'd felt since 1978 when I found my father dead. In fact, a few weeks later, I wrote a poem that started with me remembering the fear I felt as a child when there was thunder and lightning and my mother would tell me that God must be angry at the world. And we then would crawl under the kitchen table and say a decade of the rosary and hope his anger would soon pass. But the poem ends with me declaring... And many people will find what I'm about to say blasphemous. Today, if Jesus Christ were to waft his robed way towards me and say, we took your father as the final test of your faith, I'd stoop down an inch or two, reply, wrong move, buster, and headbutt the bastard all the way from here to eternity. Hmm... Incidentally, in 2005, I showed that poem to Pat Boone, a fervent Christian, after we had many discussions about religion. He said, only a person who once had a deep faith could get so angry at losing that faith. Also, and this fascinated me, Boone said he felt that as an interviewer, I seemed to be also interrogating not just people such as himself, but also myself, and maybe even God. But for now, let's get back to the first time I interrogated Richard Harris. No solution, no absolution? No. Nope. Who is that? Me. 
right? Yeah. I, still feel I wrote that. I know you do. Yeah. You still feel that? I do, yeah. Shows it must have some kind of pulse. Yeah. Uh, you still believe that? Oh, yeah, I and do, yeah. For young people today, that's that's the over, the dominant sense is no absolution, no solution. No. None. First of all, there's no solution. And, and there's no solution because no one is trying to solve anything, really. And no absolution because there's no one to receive it from. They don't believe in it anymore. They don't believe in the God figure. They don't believe in that in the church you, anymore. You don't, do you? Well, I sort of, I still cling to the last hope, the last kind of hope that probably there may be, but somehow or other. It's been a roller coaster of faith, hasn't it? Yes, it has indeed. I, I'm, I'm, was a great friend of a Welshman called Terry James, who, who had been lived in the bowels of the Welsh Church. You know how pragmatic that is in a strange way. Yeah. Um, he's the same age as me. Educated in Oxford. Producer arranger, was he? He was, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And he has this belief that, uh, yeah, he kind of believes, yeah, that there's, a, there's something out there, okay. Yeah. We argue about that. I said, well, if there is, then someone's made a terrible mistake. He said, no, we made the mistake. It's Beckett out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, yeah it's Beckett. Yeah. It's a weird sense of fucking humor. Yeah, it's a weird sense of humor. But yeah. that's what's... Uh, that's what most people of, uh, most people I would know, most people I deal with in, in hot press and young people I continue to come in contact with feel Beckett's up there or somebody like him. Yeah. It's a sick fucking joke. You know? It's a sick joke. Yeah. I mean, look around us. I mean, if only one could look around one today. I mean, look at it today. How, what's happening in, the, in, 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 in Lebanon today and Asia? What's happening in Iraq and Iran? There is no solution to it. It's only going to get worse. So what do you do? Accept it and live with it? You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make, you gotta get away from it. Laugh. Laugh. Dance. Dance. Sing. Absolutely. Laugh, dance, and sing. And care only about your own kind of. And hope. To yes. Don't hurt anybody in your own, in your own, in your own, uh, in your dance. own mad dance. Those who want to come with you, come dance with me. Those who don't, fair enough. Don't, don't dance on them. Don't stand on too many people's feet. Yeah. Around the that's floor. right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> How are you feeling? Do you want to? Have it's all right. To Carry on. Yeah, I'm enjoying this. Okay. This is uh, the first good interview I've had in years. <laughs> you haven't done any, have you? No. This is a backhanded compliment. <laughs> there you have it. And I hope this podcast has shown you already that there was far more to Richard Harris than you may have thought. Either way, as of today, November the 6th, 2022, Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven, is only available to pre order from the publisher, Miriam Press or bookstores worldwide, such as O'Mahony's in Limerick, where I will soon do a signing. It's also available from Amazon. I thank you for listening to this podcast, and if, after all that, you want to read some of my interviews, check out my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.